The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, reading verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7 in the ninth chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I want particularly to direct attention to that phrase in the sixth chapter, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And then the seventh verse, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We come back and look for the third time at this amazing prophecy here in this early portion of the ninth chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. This extraordinary extraordinary prophecy of the coming of our blessed Lord and Savior. And what is, of course, so remarkable is that all this was written by the prophet 800 years or so before these events actually took place. It is important that we should always be bearing that in mind. There is nothing that is more strengthening to faith than this whole element of prophecy in the scriptures. It means foretelling as well as forthtelling. And this is the striking thing here, that you have all these details in the Old Testament concerning our Lord and his coming. And all of them were literally, actually fulfilled down to the smallest detail by the great events which we've been thinking of and celebrating during these past days. Now here, in this prophecy, this prophecy of Isaiah, generally regarded as the evangelical prophet, we call him that simply because there is a greater number, perhaps, of these prophecies, these evangelical prophecies in his prophecy than any other. But they've all got it. They've all got it in various forms and in various ways. But this is an astonishing one, even as we've already seen. We've looked at the general characteristics which he tells us are going to characterize our Lord and his coming and the way of his coming and the way that God does these things. We've also considered uh, together uh, these names, these designations, which are descriptive of our Lord himself and of his work on behalf of his people in this world of time. And we've looked with amazement at all these things. But now, there is this third matter uh, to which I'm directing your attention this morning and which is tremendously important for us. And I feel that it's always appropriate that we should look at this aspect of the matter particularly on the Sunday after Christmas Day 
And in, in addition, because it happens to be the last Sunday of an old year. Not that these years make any difference. And yet, uh, because we are still in the flesh, they do seem to make a difference to us. And it is important for us to take advantage of every human custom and everything else that uh, leads us to consider ourselves and our lives in this world, and particularly the bearing of this great and glorious gospel upon all this. Now, what I mean is this. Our danger, most of us as Christian people, is to think of the coming of our Lord into the world and all he did, solely and only in terms of our own personal salvation. Of course, it's right that we should start with it. That's the first thing, obviously. That's what we all need. That's what the world needs. The tragedy of today is increasingly that men and men in authority, perhaps in particular, tend to look at things in the mass and forget the individual. And once you forget the individual, you're caught in disaster. It's no use saying the country ought to be doing this or that. The country, after all, consists of a number of individuals. And if you can't get individuals to realize their responsibility, well, it's no use talking about what the country should do. Every man, England expects that every man this day should do his duty. And if every man doesn't, well, your England is soon going to be in a sorry state and condition. Well, therefore, I say it is right that we should start with the personal application. We all bear our own burdens. Every man shall bear his own burden. We are all individuals and we all stand before God. And we shall all stand before God in the judgment and give an account of the deeds done in the body. So it's right that we should think primarily of the coming of our Lord and all he did in terms of our personal salvation and all the benefits that we derive individually. But it is very wrong indeed to stop at that. And that, I feel, is the danger with so many of us. Now, I don't want to go into the history of this, though it's very interesting uh, to do so. You get uh, reactions, and our danger perhaps as evangelical people is to react to what we've heard so much about in this century, the so-called social gospel. Our danger has been to react so violently against that as to give the impression that we only believe in some kind of personal salvation and that there's nothing more in the gospel than what it does for us as individuals. Now that's very wrong indeed, so that we must go beyond that and consider this further, this larger aspect of the object and the purpose of the coming of our blessed Lord and Savior into this world. And that's the thing that we are reminded of by this seventh verse in particular and by that statement there in the sixth verse, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, the hymn, the second hymn we sang this morning, that hymn of Charles Wesley's, reminds us of this very point. He says, born a child and yet a king. This is the aspect we tend to forget. He's prophet, priest, and king. And we must never forget this kingly aspect. Of course, again, uh, we can put it like this. 
that if you ignore any part or aspect of the gospel, you'll, you'll sooner or later find yourself in trouble. Uh, if you concentrate only on your personal experience and the subjective aspect, well, it's all right for a while, but then when you begin to see the church languishing, the enemies of God powerful, well, then your faith will be shaken and you'll begin to wonder whether the gospel is true after all. The moment you begin to ask that question, you've lost your personal experience. So that even from the standpoint of our own personal experience and happiness, it is vitally important that we should have a whole con concept, and a big conception of the gospel of our blessed Lord and Savior. And there is nothing, I think, that is more exhilarating and more encouraging to faith than to look at this Tremendous aspect, born a child and yet a king. The babe in the manger in Bethlehem is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, born a child and yet a king. In other words, we must look at this great world cosmic aspect, if you like, of this great salvation, God's total relationship to the world. We are saved individually out of this present evil world, yes, but there is a day coming when the whole universe, the whole cosmos, is going to be restored fully and perfectly to God. This is a part of God's great plan and purpose. Now, you will notice that this theme is always a prominent one in the Old Testament. But it is also a very prominent one in the New Testament, if you keep your eye upon it, if you read your scriptures as a whole. You will notice that our Lord himself <coughs> taught uh, so constantly about the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom. And um, you will notice, especially towards the end of his life, that this was an aspect of the matter that became increasingly prominent. You remember the sarcasm with which Pilate said, Behold, you are king to the Jews. You remember how he put the question to him, Art thou then a king? He says, You're speaking as a king. Are you a king? And our Lord replies to him and says, My kingdom is not of this world. He is a king. But he points out, as we shall have to consider this morning, that Pilate was completely wrong in his idea as to the character, the nature of this kingdom. And that is where so many go wrong. And then you remember the inscription upon the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. There it is written, and it remains written, and it's a true statement, except that we go beyond it and say that he is the King of the whole universe. Well now then, let's look into this for our encouragement and for our edification, but particularly for our encouragement. It's a wonderful thing, this. I say again, there's nothing that I know of that is more exhilarating than this. The prophet, of course, puts it, as is customary with the prophets, in a kind of dual manner. He is uh, interested uh, primarily in the case of the Jews. He was writing to his contemporaries. And, of course, he shows them that uh, the ultimate uh, 
destiny and glory of the nation is to be found in this coming king. We needn't go into the details of that this morning, but it's a question again of great David's greater son. These promises were made to the children of Israel. The promise was made to Abram, you remember, repeated, confirmed to Isaac and to Jacob. And then in a very special way, the promise was made to, to David. You'll find it in the seventh chapter of the second book of Samuel. How it was from his loins that this king was going to come. And uh, that therefore from there on, uh, everybody was looking forward uh, to this great king. You've got a wonderful statement of it in the 110th Psalm. And uh, you remember how this emerges in a conversation between the Pharisees and scribes and our Lord himself. He puts the question to them. He says, how can David say, say thou unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand? How can David call him Lord if he's David's son and so on? Well, that's just an indication of the way in which you've always got to carry in your minds this double aspect. He is the son of David and yet he's the Lord of David. He's great David's greater son. David has other sons. But the Messiah is David's son. He's of the house and lineage of David. The promise is that through Judah, then David in particular, this great deliverer is going to come. Now, the tragedy of the Jews is, of course, that they always tended to localize it and to materialize it, and thereby they crucified their own Messiah when he came. They couldn't see the double meaning, the immediate, the national, if you like, the material, the human, and this other spiritual, glorious aspect. Well, those who are familiar with chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Paul's epistle to the Romans will know exactly what I mean. The apostle expounds this point there at considerable length. However, the thing that we should be concerned about is this. Is this wonderful prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, from this cosmic, universal standpoint. What are we told? Well... The first statement is this one, that the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government, if you like, shall be placed upon his shoulder. He shall be invested with this position, with this authority, and with this power. That's another way of saying this. Here is this old world, the world made by God, so perfect, that he looked upon it and said of it, it, saw that it was good. But sin and evil came in. The devil becomes the god of this world. And the world becomes a place of confusion and disorder and trouble and pain and war and trial. Everything seems to have gone wrong. Now here is the great promise of the Bible, if you like. A governor is going to be sent who's going to put all this right. The government shall be laid upon his shoulder. We must never forget, I say, that in the fall, the fall uh, 
of the devil originally, the fall of those angels with the devil, and the fall of men, that the whole universe and cosmos have become involved. Now, we, we tend to forget that. I think we'll all admit, as Christian people, the danger is always to isolate our faith from the world and to regard it in this purely individualistic manner. But we mustn't do that. The whole cosmos, universe, is God's. And uh, this is the tragedy that it has got into its present state and condition. It's very difficult for us to realize this. But we see nothing in this world as it originally was. We have no conception of paradise. We see all the results of evil manifested even in the animal creation. You remember that striking phrase of the Apostle Paul in the 8th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. The creature, the creation, he says, was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him was subjected the same in hope. What he means is this. The creature, the creation, has been made subject to vanity. That means this, that creation, as it were, is always trying to reproduce its original condition of perfection. But it can't do it. It tries it every year. It'll be trying it next spring. Spring, if you like, is an attempt on the part of creation to restore everything, to bring new life and being out of death and chaos. But it doesn't, it doesn't succeed. You always come on to the autumn and winter so that you can say, looking out upon nature and creation, change and decay and all around I see. Flowers, oh, how wonderful when they come, bud and appear, but they don't last. Very beautiful while they do, but you know they're going to fade and they're going to wither and they're going to die. Now, why is that? Well, the answer is that there's only one answer. That is the, one of the direct consequences of the fall of men. The very ground was cursed by God as a part of men's punishment. There is nothing in the whole universe which is as it originally was. And all this is the result of the entry of evil and of sin. Now then, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent into this world was born as a baby in Bethlehem in order to restore everything. That, you remember, was stated in, in that great and pregnant phrase by the Apostle Paul in the, the first chapter to the Epistle to the Ephesians. It's a verse that we should never forget. The tenth verse of the first chapter of the Epistle to the Ephesians is one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible. Listen. Or take the ninth verse with it as an introduction. Having made known, says Paul about God, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. This is a mystery. Now, the world that's not Christian this morning knows nothing about these things at all. Nothing at all. They believe in evolution and things like that, or the second law of thermodynamics and things of that description. They, they don't understand what's happening and they can't give you any future hope. They've got no outlook at all. They don't understand. They discover many facts. That's all right, all honored to them for that. But when you come to a total view of the universe and the cosmos, they just have not got it. 
They all indeed tend to believe that the universe is running down and that either it's all going to be frozen at the end or some such end is inevitable for it. But this, this is the biblical teaching. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. What? Well, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. This is God's purpose, that God might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Everything's going to be headed up again in him. Very well, that's just another way of saying the government is placed upon his shoulder. Can we venture to look again into the eternal counsel between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? This great counsel of redemption. And this is the Father's purpose. And the Son volunteers, and the Father gives him the task. And what was the task that the Father gave to the Son? Well, you know, it was not only to redeem his people. It is that, but is more. The Father has handed over to the Son the whole cosmos, marred and ruined by sin. He's handed it over to him in order that he may deal with the problem and the situation and ultimately hand it back to him in all its glorious perfection. That is what is meant by the government shall be upon his shoulder. In other words, behind all governments in all countries today, there is this one upon whose shoulder the government of the universe ultimately rests. And he is there, seated at the right hand of God, waiting until his enemies shall be made his footstool. He lives, he reigns. This is the great proclamation that there is a government behind all governments working out the ultimate purpose of God to head up all things, not only human, but all things, heaven and earth, head them all up again in him. The government is laid upon his shoulder. Very well. What are the characteristics of his reign? He is the king. Christian people never forget this. The one who's lying in the manger is the king. The one dying on the cross is the king. King of the Jews. The king immortal, invisible. The king of kings, the lord of lords. Let's have a look at the character of his reign. And the thing that strikes us, of course, at once is the contrast, the complete contrast which it presents to every other kingdom and to every other notion of kingdom and of reign and of rule. That's why the world is always blind to the Christian message, doesn't understand it. That's why many of God's people don't understand it. As I say, that's the that was the tragedy of the Jews. They completely misunderstood God's idea of kingdom and of reign. That's why they crucified Christ. He wasn't doing what they expected him to do, what they thought he should do. And still, 
Men and women fall into this trap and into this same error. His kingdom is unlike every other kingdom. Daniel brings this out in a marvelous manner in the second chapter of his prophecy. You remember that great image in that vision given to King Nebuchadnezzar where you've got gold and you've got silver, you've got brass, you've got iron, and all these are symbolic and representative of kingdoms. And they're all in this material form, suggesting strength and power and vigor in a military sense. And then he introduces the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of God, and it's a stone cut out without hands out of a mountain. Entirely different. Or take the same great picture which you get in the seventh chapter of the book of the prophet Daniel, where, the, where these kingdoms and kings are represented by lions and by bears, these great animals, these rapacious animals in their strength and power. And the world always does that. Eagles and lions and so on. These and the bears, these are the representatives of kingdoms. But when uh, the king of kings appears, he doesn't appear like an animal at all. He appears in an entirely different guise, in a human form. This is just the way in which the contrast is forever brought out. Or take uh, the way in which we read of our Lord in the 11th, uh, in the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. He was always surprising people because of this. The Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. And he charged them that they should not make him known. How unlike earthly kings, how unlike human politicians, here is one who doesn't he charges people not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he shall not break, the smoking flax he shall not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. And you remember, as I've already quoted, our Lord saying to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. And how he said to the Pharisees, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, not with outward pomp and show. doesn't come like that. The kingdom of God is within you, amongst you, in your midst. Well now, the point I say is that this kingdom is altogether different. And that's the thing we've got to grasp. Not a matter of military might or force or power. Well, what's the characteristic of this kingdom? Well, as he tells us, it is always justice and judgment. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forevermore. Truth and righteousness are the great characteristic of this kingdom. 
These are the characteristics always where God reigns. God is power, yes. He's almighty power. He's omnipotent. But the characteristic of God is truth, righteousness, justice, equity, holiness. These are the characteristics of God and therefore they are always the essential characteristic of his kingdom wherever he reigns. So that we must always think of this as the fundamental characteristic of this reign. And this is the wonderful story of Christianity and of the Christian church. While the world is indulging in its power politics and in the clashing of empires and nations and wars and all that it reveres in that respect, this other kingdom has been coming in and is being introduced. And it's so different. That's why you get the sarcasm. This carpenter, a king, behold your king. They don't understand it. Of course they don't. Because the characteristics of this kingdom is truth and righteousness and justice. We offer the prayer, don't we? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't see much of that, but that is what's happening. That is what is taking place. This new element has come in and it is spreading. Or look at it in this way, if you like. Upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. Order. Now, as I was saying just now, the effect of sin always is to produce disorder, to produce chaos. Sin always produces chaos. If only the world and its rulers could understand that. There is nothing which is so inimical to order and government and justice and truth and righteousness as sin. Because sin is always something that takes the law into its own hand. It has only one interest. What do I want? What will gratify me? What will give me pleasure? It's rebellion. It's disorder. It's the breaking of commandments. It is transgression. These are the terms that are applied to it. So the world has become a place of disorder, of chaos and of confusion. And we're all aware of that. And we see it more and more. It's extraordinary how even the secular history of the world demonstrates the truth of the biblical teaching. Whenever you get a great period of revival and of reformation, you invariably get better government and you get better order. But as peoples in general turn their backs upon God, upon the Christian faith, you get disorder. Look at it in this country, happening now. Did you hear the news this morning? Stabbing, shooting, murders, gangs, and all this disorder that is becoming increasingly a characteristic of the life of this city of ours and of the whole country and of other nations. This is the disorder that is the result of rebellion against God. And there is no greater madness that I know of than that there should be rulers and people in authority and power who think that they can ever get order by passing acts of parliament and ignoring God and the Christian faith. It's impossible. He's the only one who ever brings order. And wherever he reigns, there is order. 
There is discipline. The Christian is a man who disciplines himself. His very new nature insists upon that. Because the government is upon his shoulders that he may restore order. And wherever he reigns, you see this happening. In people's behavior and conduct. In their attitude towards work, towards life, towards everything. Everything is changed. And you tend to get an orderly way of life and of existence. And in the same way, of course, he's concerned about peace. There, obviously, the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom. And in the same way, you see, sin always leads to war, lack of peace. The devil always produces disorder and he produces a lack of peace. Adam and Eve had known perfect peace until they sinned. They never knew it again. Strife, envy, jealousy, Cain and Abel. There it is. Warfare. Looking at one another. Thinking hard, harsh, unforgiving thoughts. Dear friend, there's no point in singing Christmas carols unless the Prince of Peace is reigning in your heart. And when he comes and when he reigns, there is not only order, there is peace. Peace with God, peace with one another, peace within. You're no longer in a turmoil, this restless, which never can find satisfaction and all wrong attitudes to others. He banishes all that. He's come in order to do away with it, which is the result directly of sin and of evil. Now, the Son of God came into the world to do this. That's the prophecy. That's the fulfillment. And you read it. You, you read the, the accounts in the New Testament. You'll find that he does it in his teaching. You read your Beatitudes again. How does he start? Well, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's a death blow to all the arrogant pride of the world. And so he produces order. He knocks down all greatness. And he knocks down all enmity. Poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. You see, in all his teaching... He was bringing in the characteristics of his kingdom. He says, this is the sort of kingdom I'm concerned about. Not the outward, not pomp, show, power. But the kingdom, God's righteousness and justice reigning within the hearts of men. He did it in his teaching. He did it in his life. What order, what peace you observe in his life, in all his conduct and in all his behavior. And he does it, of course, supremely in his death. There he's finally destroying the enemies that have brought in the disorder and the lack of peace. And by his death he makes peace. He breaks down middle walls of partition. He makes of twain one new man. He removes enmities. These are the results of his coming. These are the characteristics of his kingdom always. And he will go on with this until he will bring in a final judgment. He will come again. He's to come back to complete this work. And he will come back. And he will judge the world in righteousness. The government is upon his shoulder. And he will mete out to all the enemies of God their just retribution. 
and he will reward his people. There is to be a great restoration. He says it himself at the end of the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. In the regeneration, he says, when the Son of Man shall come. Regeneration. The reordering of the entire cosmos. Sin and evil destroyed and banished. And the original perfection and more restored to everything. And he will hand back the kingdom to God, his heavenly Father. Very well. There you have some of the great characteristics of this kingdom of God and of the Son of God. And then you see the result of all this is this. There is going to be stability of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end. Stability. Henceforth, he says, even forever. Now this again is to me a most thrilling thought. And it's not surprising, you see, that in the uh, announcing of the coming of this son to Mary, that this point should have been emphasized by the archangel Gabriel. You remember how the archangel came to Mary and addressed her like this. He said, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Yeah, it is. Same idea. It's the great idea running through the whole of the Bible. It means that his kingdom is to be firmly established. This is not a temporary kingdom. What's the history of the world? Well, it's the history of great dynasties arising and disappearing. Striding the world as a colossus coming to nothing. Look at the great civilizations. Look at the great empires that have risen only to fall. There's no stability. They don't last forever. They come, they flourish, they go. It's the whole characteristic of men, of men's greatness, of human greatness. Nothing stays. Nothing is constant. Each one thinks it's going to be the last. It never is. It never will be. But here is a kingdom that is entirely and altogether different. That's what should make us all be so thrilled with a sense of glory and of wonder this morning, that we belong to a kingdom which is stable, will never change. That is why I say again, there's nothing to me more fatuous than people who use the name Christian saying that the message is new for every century. That's a denial of this very principle. The principles of this kingdom were laid down once and forever by the king. Two thousand years ago. And if you, my dear friend, to the slightest extent, are influenced by the fact that you live in 1964 and nearly in 65, well, you've never understood this great message. There is nothing which is so ridiculous as this idea 
that you need new principles of thought and of understanding because of uh, some scientific discoveries or anything else. It's just sheer nonsense. It's a denial of the whole of the faith. Here is a kingdom that is established. Laid down once and forever. The principles, the program was laid down by the king himself. Justice and righteousness. There is no addition. There must be no subtraction. It's exactly as he stated it. So, the gospel this morning is the same gospel as it was a hundred years ago, as it was a thousand years ago, as it was nearly two thousand years ago. This is a kingdom which is stable. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Whatever may be true of the Christian church today, we know the church is to go on until the work is completed. I don't care what's set against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail. Death shall not prevent this from succeeding. And that, of course, is the theme of the great book of Revelation. It was written to encourage Christian believers in every age and generation. It tells us plainly that we mustn't expect an easy time in this world We'll never get it until this great day comes when this rider on the white horse shall appear with a sword in his mouth and he'll destroy his every enemy and then he'll set up his kingdom and then we shall know peace and everything that we've ever longed for. Let all the beasts arise out of the earth and out of the sea. Let evil, cruel men scheme and do everything they can. It doesn't make the slightest difference. He will come, King of kings, Lord of lords, and he'll rout his every enemy, and his kingdom shall be over the whole cosmos. It's a stable kingdom, this. It's a kingdom which never shall be moved, and it's a kingdom that is increasing. Of the increase of his kingdom, there shall be, of his government and peace, there shall be no end henceforth and forevermore. This means numbers, this means extent. This means that in every age and generation, men and women are being won from the world to the kingdom of God. We are amongst them. We are a part of the increase. There was a time when we didn't belong to it, we belong to it. The kingdom of God is increasing. The number of the elect is being gathered in. It's going on and on and on, and it will go on until it's finally complete. Increase in that sense, but increase in extent also. There is a day coming when no part of the universe will be outside his reign and jurisdiction. Isn't this a wonderful thing to contemplate? Think of all the countries of the earth this morning. Think of them in the far distant parts of the earth from this little country of ours. There's a day coming when everybody everywhere will acknowledge him and bow the knee to him. The kingdom, as Daniel puts it in that great second chapter, this stone cut out without hands from the mountain is going to fill the whole earth. And there'll be nothing but this kingdom. The kingdoms of this world shall have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Beloved friends, this is why he came. He came to do this. Not only to deliver us, but he delivered us in order that we might be citizens in this glorious kingdom. And even creation is going to be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious 
liberty of the children of God. How do I know that all this is going to happen? How can we be sure of all these things? Well, you remember the last phrase in the seventh verse? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. What a statement, what a phrase. The guarantee of all this is this, that it's God's own purpose. And with uh, what is almost a dangerous anthropomorphism, the prophet puts it like that. He says, the zeal of God is going to bring it through. It's the purpose of God. It's the power of God. It's the energy of God. More than that, the glory of God is involved in all this. That's why this is bound to happen. That is why this is going to happen. My dear friends, the glory of God is involved in the whole matter of this earth, this cosmos in which you and I are living. Is it conceivable that the everlasting, eternal, glorious God is going to allow the devil finally to triumph and to prevail? The thing is unthinkable. It's impossible. The glory of God demands it, so the zeal of God is in it. The energy of the eternal God is behind this process, behind this kingdom. It must triumph. It will triumph. It is triumphing. So the last thing that you and I must do is merely to look at the immediate outward circumstances. We stand back and we look at the whole purpose. God sent his son into this world, handed over the whole business of the cosmos to him, laid the government upon his shoulder in order that he might deal with the situation. He might deal first with the enemies who produced the situation, destroy them, and then renovate, renew the entire cosmos. And he came to do that, and he's in process of doing it, and he'll go on doing it until... The work is finally completed. What a consoling thought. What an exhilarating thought to know that even at this moment the government is upon the shoulders of the strong Son of God. He hath laid help upon one that is mighty. So his kingdom shall be without end. And it's a kingdom of righteousness and of justice, of peace, of equity, and of holiness. Blessed be the name of God, who has called us out of darkness, and out of the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of his dear Son, We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.
www.ghostbusters.org.